I am Captain Matthew Gillespie of the Philadelphia Police Department's 18th District, and this is Aftermath Philadelphia. In this podcast, we host critical conversations with those involved in reducing the epidemic of gun violence in the city of Philadelphia. This podcast features candid episodes that highlight different thoughts and perspectives while offering strategies to lower the violence. This episode is the first of a specific three-part series focusing on the men and women of the Philadelphia Police Department and their direct role in solving gun crimes, making firearm arrests, and testing and investigating the guns involved in these crimes. I'm very pleased to sit down with Anne Marie Kelly, Philadelphia Police Department Forensic Lab Supervisor, and we discuss her role and position as a member and supervisor of the unit tasked with testing and investigating all the guns taken off the streets of Philadelphia, which are in the thousands. This includes guns involved in homicides, non-fatal shootings, aggravated assaults, and recovered during arrests. We dig into what it entails to become a firearms examiner, along with the importance of focusing on the science when conducting these guns and tests. The opinions, thoughts, and ideas in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, thoughts, and ideas of the Philadelphia Police Department or the City of Philadelphia. All right, everyone, welcome back to Aftermath Philadelphia. Uh, this is really a special episode for me. It's the first in a, a series of three where we really dig into the uh, the illegal firearms, the gun arrests in Philadelphia. We call it the VUFA arrests. Um, I have a very special guest, Anne-Marie Kelly, the forensic lab supervisor over at, um, and I may say it wrong, uh, essentially our, our forensic bureau that does all the testing, anything connected to firearms. Um, and if you have paid any attention to what's going on in Philadelphia, she and her staff are extremely busy right now. Anne-Marie, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, let's just get right into it. You know, as a young police officer, uh, we talked about it before we went on the air, you know, I thought this, I can tell you some of my cops think it, right? They think we would make the arrest Somebody's carrying a gun illegally. We make the arrest, transport the person back to the district, and we would take the gun to FIU, the Firearms Identification Unit, and I would think it would just go mysteriously into this abyss or, or a, a filing cabinet somewhere, and that is not the case. Um, That's not the case. W- tell us, you know, what is FIU for the audience? So the Firearms Identification Unit is a unit within the Office of Forensic Science, and we're tasked with examining all firearms, ammunition, and ammunition-related components that are submitted to the Office of Forensic Science uh, after recovery in Philadelphia. You know, you're probably in the wheels of holding people accountable, a very important piece. Those that are carrying guns, you know, causing a lot of this violence, helping to help helping us and the system to call hold people accountable. You know, the question I got and I was thinking before we, we went live is like, how do you how did you become a firearms identification supervisor? How did you get in this field? 
Um, so I have an interest, interesting path into the field. Um, I've been with the Philadelphia Police Department as a civilian since 2007. Uh, I worked in finance, actually, payroll specifically. Um, and after my tenure point, an opportunity opened up um, for a position running the IBIS system, which is the Integrated Ballistic Identification System. And that essentially is a computerized database where uh, digital images of fire cartridge cases and firearms um, are housed in a database and correlated to look for potential matches. So um, I, was, I took a test and I got the promotion and I went over there as a Niven tech. I, I always had a, a really strong interest in science and forensic science specifically. Uh, so at two years in that position, um, I was exposed to all areas of firearms identification. Tons of material to read, uh, worked with really experienced, um, very talented people in the unit who all, all uh, took their part to mentor me. And uh, at the end of that two-year period, I decided to apply for a trainee position to be a firearms examiner. Uh, so I uh, took another test and, and got and that promotion are. and started a 18-month uh, training program in the unit. And, and is that the 18-month training program? Is that kind of... Um Standard? Does it really take that long to really be brought up to speed? It is, and actually now it's a little bit longer. It's closer to about the two-year mark, wow. uh, and that's because uh, our laboratory is accredited, and there are other requirements uh, for accreditation that we also have to cover. Ethics, quality assurance, quality control, um, a series of uh, um, mock trials and, and things of that nature. So it's actually a little bit longer than it was before. And it, is it fair to say you, you testify in court as well? Yes. Right? And I would assume, obviously, specifically homicide trials? Homicide trials, VUFA trials, juvenile court, um, you know, federal federal mm -hmm. court. Um, and also we can actually also testify for defense in cases. So typically prosecution, but also for the defense. Wow. So for the audience, and, and you know these numbers, but... Here are the, the VUFA arrests, so the violation of the Uniform Firearms Act. So individuals carrying guns illegally that shouldn't be in the city of Philadelphia. In 2019, 1,711 arrests, individuals with guns were made. 2020, last year, 2,280. And 2021, this year, year to date, um, we have 1,952. And I do want to say the numbers could be off here or there a little bit. Your office is examining every single one. Yes. I mean, from from the minute it comes in to, you know, trial, you play a part in, in what that gun does. And you said earlier before we went on, in previous years you wouldn't examine firearms necessarily until trial. Could you explain that? Uh, yeah. If I, um, I'll get into a little bit how we examine guns because okay. that, that plays yeah, a big role better. in what we do. Even better. Um, so... Every firearm that we receive, we are required to conduct an examination and a test fire. Okay. We have to determine if a gun is operable upon submission. And that has a lot to do with um, how that case would proceed in the legal system, right? An inoperable gun or a gun that's on incapable of discharging would be was, handled differently than a gun that's and operable. And that was my question, yeah. So uh, we do a bench examination, make sure the gun's safe, uh, you know, log the make, model, serial number, uh, the caliber test fire the firearm, enter okay. it into a Nibin database, and then do microscopic examinations of any ballistic evidence. And the, and the Nibin, just for the audience, what is that? Uh, Nibin is National Integrated Ballistic Information System. 
and that is a nationwide database uh, that houses digital images of fire cartridge cases and test fires from firearms. And that uh, database is automatically correlated and reviewed. And what it does is it helps to provide links between cases. So if an image is entered uh, from a shooting, fire mm -hmm. cartridge case from a shooting, and in the future a firearm is entered, and that firearm was used, a correlation report will be issued that says there's a high confidence correlation lead or a high probability that this gun was used in this shooting. So it's like we have machinery going past us. That's what happens when you work in the city of Philadelphia. Of course. So, um, so for example, 18th District, right? So if one of my cops make a firearm arrest and, what, and it's at 60th and Market, and that gun comes to your office, it's tested, it's put in an Ivan system, and that gun was used in North Philadelphia, and those shell casings were required from that scene, your office would help determine, help us see that those that gun is connected to the shooting in North Philadelphia. Right, that's correct. And and essentially, um, that's important because, I mean, for a couple of reasons, right? You're, you just talked about the volume that you're handling, therefore, uh, detectives have the same volume. Yeah. Firearms more. identification unit, we have the same volume. It's impossible for firearms examiners to microscopically look at evidence from every shooting that comes in and, and make connections. This database does that for us. Mm -hmm. So when that information is sent out to an investigator, it gives them a lead, whether that is uh, an area to look at to see if there's a camera or to see if there's a witness yeah. or to see if there's a suspect. Um, and it just provides a link that investigators can use in real time to work their cases. Years ago, when we would uh, test firearms, we would test fire them when they were needed for court. A gun could sit in storage for two years until it went to court. Wow. Now, um, we started a, a, a partnership with the ATF in 2016, and we developed a fast brass program. And essentially what that does is the expedited entry of all fire cartridge cases that are recovered, whether they're homicides, ag assaults, found on the highway, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the fast test fire and entry of all firearms so that um, investigative leads can go out in a timely fashion when the case is relevant, why an investigator is still actively working that case versus two years later. You know, I'm glad that you brought that point up because one of the things I hear a lot is obviously if someone is shot and loses their life, um, a lot of attention, as it should be, is put on that by some of the best investigators in the country in our homicide unit. Um, if there's a non-fatal shooting, the divisional detectives, you know, the districts, there's a lot of attention, as they should. What I would hear from the community often is the, we call them shooting incidents, right? So, like, you hear a bunch of gunshots, maybe people were shooting back and forth at each other, but nobody got hit, there's nobody around, to say, like, hey, somebody was shooting at me, it's the cops show up and there's 15 shell casings on the ground, and the overwhelming majority good people are left to, to see this and deal with it. And they all they would see is the police or the detectives come recover those shell casings. So they do go somewhere. Yes. And they are investigated. Yes, and actually they're investigated with the same level of... Um care, I yeah, guess, as no, any other absolutely. shooting. And and the reason for that is, um, okay, let's just say we only expedited homicides. Mm -hmm. That's only a fraction, and it's a high fraction in Philadelphia, but it's only a fraction of gun crime. Whereas, for instance, if you, cops pull up and there's 
15 fire cartridge cases found on the highway or a vehicle was shot or a stop sign was shot. Um, when that evidence goes into Niven, in the same time frame that any other evidence goes into Niven, that could lead to a link of more serious cases. So let's just say part, part, of, part of this partnership with the ATF, actually, I think that makes this program really effective is when the correlations are completed, mm -hmm. that information is sent to the ATF Crime Gun Intelligence Center. And they compile a packet of information related to that shooting incident, where guns were purchased, where they were transferred, all the shootings that are linked, and whether there are suspects, victims, injuries, fatals, mm -hmm. circumstances, and time between incidents. So you may have a shooting on the 15th, and your next shooting could be on the 17th, and the yeah. next shooting could be 200 days later. Yeah. All that's listed. But where that becomes important is, in that one case that might be a vandalism of a car, a lot of times it's not just a vandalism of a car. Maybe exactly. someone was being shot at. Exactly. So now you can start to piece different incidents together, compile video, it, it's talk almost, to witnesses. It, it's almost like a roadmap of what's going on yep. you know a term we use a lot or you know some people use are, are breadcrumbs and uh it kind of shows you where the gun i'm thinking of one in particular in Ivan report that actually showed um not only where the gun was used in west philadelphia but like you said the dates and times and through the investigation when some of the shootings that this gun was involved in was used the detectives did a great job and, and got a statement where the individual said essentially they rented the gun. They rent the gun right. to individuals in their neighborhood. Right. And the the, the information that you guys get um, helps show that. Right. And, and that's a difficult thing. Um, you know, we try and explain when we go to court that um, we can put a gun at the scene. Mm -hmm. We cannot put a person at the scene. That's where other areas of forensics come into play, DNA point. and fingerprints. Yeah. All I can say, um, and I am a firearms examiner by discipline, so I, I do firearms examination casework, all I can say is that that gun was present. You know, it's not our job to put an individual mm -hmm. there. Um, but I think um, another really important aspect of, of this NIBIN program is straw purchases. Um, have also been identified because when Big there's problem. a gun involved, right, and there's a serial number recovered, that gun is traced back to the time it's purchased. And if, you know, Jane Doe purchased 15 guns, and ironically her guns keep popping up in different instances, that's when the ATF is going to go look at Jane Doe and, and question her about straw purchasing. And that's something that, you know, we really struggle with in West Philadelphia. with The ATF, al alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, uh, the PA, Attorney General's Office, uh, I think they have a squad called their, their Strike Force. They do a lot of that, and, and that's a lot of things I see in West Philadelphia on the Niven reports is, like, when I'm fully, you know, the, I'm, the end of the investigation is shown to me, and you're just like, wow, how can one person, and 15 is not an exaggerated number, no. legitimately buy 15 guns in X amount of time, and 13 of those guns have either been, Involved in a shooting, recovered by some, you know, somebody else is carrying them. Um, that person has some explaining to do. Right, and, right, and, and rightfully so, needs to be held accountable. Right, you know. And we, you know, we not only deal with those guns, we deal with you know guns that were legally purchased um, and maybe stolen. 
you know, during the course of a robbery. Um, we also deal with, uh, you know, um, privately made firearms. They're called PMFs now. We know them as ghost guns, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, we deal with that also. And um, I think because of the volume, we really need to use all the tools we have available to try and get some of these guns off the street and try and solve some of these crimes, you know, to bring, you know, bring closure to victims' yeah. families and, and, and bring justice. Yeah, two questions popped in my mind. So, um, you know, that young cop that chases somebody and does a quality car stop and gets the gun and they're very excited because it's their first firearms arrest and they, they're, they're making the neighborhood safer. Um, they do all their paperwork, they go down to FIU, and they think the gun just disappears to the, the abyss, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they don't realize that it's, it's the, you know, the 2,000th, uh, or, or if not more, firearm uh, that, that you guys got this year. Um, what happens to the gun once you're done processing it? So you're, you're done processing it, um, it's still needed for court, and then also the court case is done. What then happens to it? So when we're done examining firearms, um, they are sent to our storage facility where, where all of our evidence is stored. And uh, the city has certain rules on how long they maintain evidence. So while that case is active, while it's active in the court system, that evidence is, is uh, maintained. And then there's a, and I'm not sure of the time frame, but there are parameters set. For instance, uh, some cases may be a set number of years after the case is closed. Uh, evidence will then be destroyed. Uh, Philadelphia doesn't participate in reselling any firearms, reusing firearms. Firearms are eventually, uh, they're melted down and destroyed completely in okay. Philadelphia. Um, and homicide evidence uh, is kept. Okay. And that's kept because of the various appeals process. So you want to keep the evidence active um, because there are cases that, you know, 20 years down the line, um, new trials granted, and that evidence has to be presented in court, reexamined. The ghost gun issue, you know, we're seeing it a lot on the street. You know, we're not, I don't have exact numbers, but I can tell you exponentially it's a lot. And I'm seeing a lot of younger people with these ghost guns. What's your office seeing? You seeing an increase? We do. Uh, in 2019, we had 95 ghost guns submitted. 2020, we had 250. Wow. And so far this year, we have 423. So those uh, privately made firearms account for, I think it's just over 9.5% of the guns we see. Wow. It's about 9.45% wow. exactly. That's, that's, um, so that includes firearms that are recovered from an arrest, found on the street. Uh, the detectives do a search warrant at a house. They recover these weapons. So yep. you're getting firearms not just from arrests. I want to make that clear. And, you know, overall, what number-wise, and, and if you don't have the exact number, that's okay. How many how many firearms has your office gotten this year? So, so far, as of yesterday, uh, we've had 4,475 firearms submitted. Wow. So, wow. for comparison, 2017, by the end of 2017, we had 3,552. So if we continue on the pace that we're at now, we'll have over 6,000 guns submitted by the end of the year. You know, I'm actually speechless. I, I just don't yeah. have, because for two reasons, right? I, I th th That number is just astronomical. And then you and I have talked before. We know the work that these cops are out there doing. The yes. cops, the detectives, uh, the officers assigned to the narcotics. You know, these are officers out there um, getting weapons off the street from people that should not have them. 
you know, right. and that want to use them, are using them, and are dangerous and need to be held accountable. And we're talking over 4,000 firearms off the street. You know, one of the things you can't quantify is like, and I say this to my cops a lot at roll call, how many shootings did you prevent from that? Right. Uh, you know. And to give you an idea, um, because we, you know, we do, uh, up until recently, all of the Nibin leads that were sent out cycled through our unit. So they were actually disseminated from our unit. And now the ATF is handling that in their correlation center in Huntsville, Alabama. So that's been about for the last month. But okay. I can tell you that it is not uncommon for us to have one firearm test fired and put in Nibin and have that one gun hit on upwards of 13, 14 different shooting incidents in the city. Now, whether that's committed by one person or the guns are passed around, we know that happens, yeah. rented or, or yeah, you yeah. know, passed amongst people, mm-hmm. sold. Um, but that gives you an idea of what one gun on the street can can produce in terms of gun crime. You know, I'm thinking of an individual, um, I'm pretty... I think outspoken or you know, vocal about the issue of um, you know the repeat individuals and, and and everybody in the city has talked about it. I mean, it's not a secret that you know the repeat f- illegal firearm carriers. And, and there's one individual I'm thinking, and he is in custody right now. Uh, in a 10 month period, uh, maybe a little over 10 months, but you know, with definitely within a year and a half period, I think he had three firearms arrests. And then the Nibin reports came back for those guns. And it was almost pushing double digits that those three guns that this this person was caught with, not saying that he did the shootings, but he was in possession of three guns. Those three guns were used in almost double-digit number shootings, and um, it, it's just astronomical. Yeah. It really is. It's, it's astronomical. It is, and I, and I think um, another thing that uh, I find alarming is the age of yes. some of these, their kids, uh, that that these guns are taken off of. And I'm talking 15-year-old kids, and that's alarming. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I didn't even have that on my list here, but I, I, I am. I mean, the other day, uh, a high school in, in the district, the 18th district, ninth grader, got caught with a firearm. Yeah. Um, he was obviously, like, Upset. It was his first arrest. His mother was was distraught. Like his mother was beyond. You know, the kid. She, when we spent the time to talk to her, she just she just was like so upset that he was. And we do believe he was holding the gun for somebody else, based off what he told us. Mm-hmm. Um, the accessibility to these firearms is just out there. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's the only thing. I mean, I, I do think there's a component where some people, especially the repeat offenders, feel like it's not that big of a deal. Right. And, and you know, one of the things that um, that I actually think is really important in our unit that makes both of our jobs a mm-hmm. little different, um, officers on the street and investigators, they know what an individual's past history is, right? They know what their arrest record is. They know, you know, what their past history shows. It's different in the firearms identification unit. So um, our unit's also unique in that we're, we're kind of hybrid. We are mm. half sworn police officers and half civilian. Okay. Um, 
So one of the important things uh, that we always um, like to inform people of is that we don't have any information on the suspect. I don't know someone's history. I don't know anybody's arrest record. I don't know what any of their involvement is on the street. Yeah. And I think that's really important when you're looking at forensic evidence because you really need to eliminate any possibility of biased cognitive bias whether whether we are, you know the whole point is you don't even realize it exists and when you remove yourself from the 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 incident and the details of the incident and you look at the evidence just for what it is it allows you to reach a determining determination based on what the evidence says and just because we have officers they're dealing with the evidence they're not looking at the case like an officer on the street would and just because we have civilians who have no investigative experience, it's the same thing. But I think that's really important in forensics because I think one of the um, beliefs that people have, especially for us, we're a lab within the police department, is that, oh, you work for the police department, therefore you're putting people in prison. And that's, real, that's not what we do. We examine the evidence and we report the facts that the evidence say. And whichever direction those facts go, whether they help a prosecution or well they or they help a defense, um, it is what it is. And we have to be sure that people understand that when we examine our evidence, you know, we all want justice, right? Absolutely. But from a forensic standpoint, especially, justice is just the truth. And whether that's justice for a victim or whether that's justice for someone who is charged with the crime that they didn't commit. The quality of the forensic work that's done is so important because everything we look at, it does have a direct impact on people's lives. So, you know, in some cases, yes, it will hold someone accountable for something they did, and it will get closure for a family. And in other cases, it will exonerate someone who is not responsible. And I think people sometimes overlook that when they hear a police department lab. I'm really glad you brought that point up. You know, I just have to be honest, it's it's my podcast, so I can say it. Um, you do get a little tired of the, the, you know, some of the undeserved police rhetoric. You do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, the officers are tired of it, you know. But this is the profession we choose, and we're all adults, and we'll, we'll deal with it. It you know the officers. I think on the street, at least in my in my district, and in all districts, I think, you know, want that right. They want to get justice for those that deserve it. They want to do the right decision, even if that means like not arresting somebody. Right. And the point to your point of like, you just look at the facts. You're not looking at the person or the circumstances, and you're there to help do the, the, the legal and the moral and the ethical thing, which is hold the person accountable if they need to be or help them get out of whatever predicament they may not even have been involved in. Right, right. And that is, um, that's, that's what policing is. Yeah. Uh, for instance, years ago, um, and I don't remember what district it happened, um, but a, a case uh, came in the unit where uh, a, a young man was arrested um, and charged with VUFA and also um, assault on police uh, for discharging a firearm was the charge. Okay, so he allegedly shot the weapon at the police. At the police. Um, and, and 
upon questioning him, and this was all found out after the fact, yeah. after a request was made to do certain testing on this gun, um, his position was, I didn't fire the gun. I threw the gun and the gun went off. Okay. So when that gun was tested in the firearms unit, uh, a drop test and an impact test was conducted. And that's a test that we can do to determine if a gun is capable of discharging without the trigger being pulled. And typically that's due to some type of internal mechanism, malfunction, or an alteration or you know corrosion or wear. And when that testing was done, it was determined that that gun did discharge without the trigger being pulled. And therefore that corroborated his story of I threw the gun and that gun went off. So in a case like that, yeah, maybe, maybe that person is still looking at a VUFA charge, but that's a lot different than looking at a charge of firing at police because that's not what the evidence showed could happen. Wow. I mean, that's a really powerful story. And, and you know, you want to hold people accountable. They should be held accountable, but you want to hold them accountable for, for what they actually did. Correct. You know? Um, what's, like, the average time? So you, you get a gun. I've always been interested in this, right? A firearm comes in. Like, how long does it take to test it? Does that make sense, the question? It does. It does. And it's really case-specific. Um, you know, all cases are different. But if you're looking at, a, you know, your general firearm case, no mechanical issues, mm -hmm. an operable gun, fairly well-maintained. You know, by the time that gun comes in, it's assigned to someone, can be looked at, uh, examined, a bench exam for safety, and test-fired and entered in the NIBIN um, within a couple hours. Wow. So... Um, you know, it's hard to to put an examination number on all cases because they are different, right? We mm -hmm. can have a homicide that consists of one bullet or one fire cartridge case. We can have an aggravated assault that has 133 fire cartridge cases, which is one I just worked on uh, with a colleague uh, a few weeks ago. So it's not necessarily that, that homicides are any more intricate than an aggravated assault or one gun it takes more time than mm -hmm. another. It's really case-specific. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think where a lot of our um, lengthier examinations come in is when uh, cross-checks are requested. So, for instance, a NIBIN lead may go out to an investigator and say, hey, there's a potential that this gun was used in your scene. That's when they'll contact us and say, hey, I need that evidence looked at by two examiners because I need to know scientifically if there's a match. And then all the evidence is pulled and examination is conducted on the microscope. Wow. Um, and then a, then a report is issued. So that's really where um, I think our process gets lengthy when you get into the microscopic work. So I, I teach at a local university. Um, this is a freshman level, you know, introduction class. And um, one of the questions they asked me basically was like the um, forensic stuff. Is it is it like TV? So, so basically what you're saying is in less than a half hour, you will not have this <laughs> figured out. No, no. And it, it is a lengthy process. And, and from start to finish, especially when you're, like I said, you're looking at, at uh, say, a cross-check on a homicide. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times we have evidence recovered from multiple locations, you know, the scene and then maybe a car and then maybe a search warrant mm -hmm. and then the medical examiner's office or ballistics that were removed during treatment at the hospital. So you have to wait for all that evidence to even come in. And, and there's, yeah. you know, that, that's going to come in at all different times, depending on where it's coming from. And uh, microscopic examinations can take anywhere from a half hour to three, four weeks of head cases, you know, uh, depending on the caliber used and the type of ammunition used and the, um, the volume of the evidence. 
So it really is case-by-case basis, but it is certainly nothing like you see on television. Um, and that's what I told them, and some of them yeah. still don't believe me, but it's the, the, the youngest, the younger, younger generation out there now. Um, it's not just the firearms, right? So, like, you said it earlier. I just want to make sure everybody knows how busy, basically, your, your unit is. You're, you're getting the guns. You're getting the shell casings, which we call FCCs. Right. You're getting the, the fragments, right? You're getting the, the actual rounds that may come out of a person. Yep, the actual projectiles, whether they're, you know, entire bullets or projectiles mm-hmm. or, or fragments, jackets, cores. The, the units that you probably most... And correct me if I'm wrong, work with, I would assume, crime scene unit. Yes. Homicide. Yes. Detective divisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just from the patrol side, for, you know, the cops that listen, because there are some that do to this one podcast, you know, what can police officers do to, to better help you? Um, I think there's a couple things. Um, I think the way evidence is handled, right, should always be important. Um, Absolutely. I think it's always important to uh, handle guns in a manner that you're not excessively touching them. Um, don't uh, excessively or, or for any other reason than clearing the gun. Yeah. You know, work the action or, or anything like that because mm-hmm. you, you really want the gun to be submitted in the condition from which it was found. Um, I think the most important thing is guarding evidence when uh, DNA and fingerprints are, are an issue. And, and honestly, right now, uh, in the court system, as well as just in, in you know, public opinion, DNA and fingerprints are you know, of the utmost importance. Yeah. So yeah. Um, if there's ever a question where you know, that may be important or um, needs to be preserved, you need to really, you know, guard it. Hands wear gloves, guard it properly, wrap it properly. And then, of course, um, just submitting evidence timely. And I know that there's there's time restrictions on, on the submission sure. of firearms, but also, you know, things like ammunition and cartridge cases and projectiles. Um, yeah. And, you know, I know it's a lot of running because there's evidence, like I said, that's, that's submitted from all these areas, and it takes time and it takes manpower. Um so, you know, there's a lot of working components. You know, I, 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 there's a lot of working components. We're a busy city. You know, we have excellent police officers and civilians. Um, it just seems like it never stops sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I, and I think that is a testament to the cops out on the street. You know, we have three shifts, right? Eight to four, four to 12, midnight to eight. Uh, you're open 24 hours, FIU. Uh, our evidence intake, intake unit is open 24 hours, you know, yes. So there's guns being taken off our street at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, and all these guns go through the same process. Yeah. You know, all these guns, all the, the casings, the, the FCCs, the, the, the ballistics. Um, you know, I do have to say, I, I actually am looking at my phone here. I, I have a, a homicide victim, is uh, father, has just called me. And um, the case was solved. The homicide detective solved it. It actually occurred on the night of uh, October 26th, where there was riots in the 18th district. Uh, his son was his son was shot, and the ballistics actually um, helped solve the crime and tied it to two other shootings. Okay. Um, I'll tell you more about it offline, but. Uh, 
that's a case of, of the work that you did combined with the investigators and some of the other stuff that they did. And, and to, to hear somebody, um, he threw me off a little bit when he called, I'll be honest, you know, to, to hear from him. So to, to know how indebted he is to the police department to have the killers of his son who was just playing basketball on Spruce Street and got caught in a drive-by shooting and did nothing. Right. Um, to have them caught um, really meant a lot to him and I think gave him, he'll never have closure as he said, but it gave him um, some and, you know, that's the work that you guys are doing down there, you know. Yeah, and I, and I think, um, you know, we're kind of the, we're kind of in the shadows yeah. in the firearms unit, right, because people don't really have exposure to us and our mm -hmm. people aren't out on the street interacting, but, um, you know, day in and day out, the people in our unit they work really, really hard. They're really dedicated. Um, every case is important. There's, there's no case where, it, um, there, there's no case that's handled differently. I mean, a gun found in an alley and a gun found at the scene of a, of a homicide are handled the mm -hmm. same. And I, and I think, um, I think a lot of times, people behind the scenes don't necessarily get the credit. And I know, you know, absolutely, credit is due to officers on the street yeah. because you know they're out there. I got gotcha. you. But I, I think people don't realize the amount of work and the volume of work that our unit handles and the dedication of the men and women in my unit. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's very impressive. And everybody there takes their job seriously. Um, and I really feel like people are in this line of work because they believe it's the right thing to do. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, we you have limited contact with people um, typically you know, I don't. I don't deal with a family unless it's after I after I testify. Mm -hmm. You know, come off the stand, and yeah. I've had family members come up and, oh, thank you so much, and you did a great job. And I always tell people, I'm just I'm just doing my job, and mm -hmm. I'm just I'm just saying I'm just saying the truth. Yeah. And I'm I'm glad if the truth helped you today. You know, it may help somebody else tomorrow, but um, I, I feel like you do get a certain level of satisfaction that you played some kind of role in in mm -hmm. in in getting some type of justice um, because the gun crime in Philadelphia I mean I've been in the firearms unit for 12 years and it's grown so much in 12 years um, you know I was just having a conversation with someone today uh, she's a Nibin technician and basically her job is to screen all the fire cartridge cases that come in okay. she'll look at them, she'll group them gotcha. into how many preliminary guns we have and then enter them into yeah. the system and she was telling me how she was just handling two cases today that were over 40-something fire cartridge cases. And I said to her, 10 years ago, if you had 20 fire cartridge cases at a scene, that was considered a big crime scene. And now 40 and 50 fire cartridge cases is average. Mm -hmm. You know, three, four, five, six guns at a shooting, that's average today. And that's alarming, really. No, it's, um, what you guys do is so commendable. I mean... I just had these thoughts running through my mind. July 4th, you know, I'm working in the district, and, and other people have heard me say this, whether social media or otherwise, and in two hours and 37 minutes, I had eight people shot, two dead. Um, the, the, the double homicide on 60th Street had 103 shell casings. Crime scene unit collected all of them. You know, I followed mm -hmm. up with your office. You guys were on top of checking every single shell casing, and, and there's there's... There's leads and successes we've had in, in holding some of those accountable. And it's just um, 
there's, there is a lot of good work going on in this police department. There is a lot of cops, civilians, and supervisors and leaders out here really doing stuff and to kind of bring FIU out of the shadows so the people can hear what you guys do. Um, I just thank you so much. Honestly, I know how thousands, thousands of firearms and each one is treated the same. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and just one more thing, too. In addition to that, we do serial number restorations, right? We mm-hmm. recover so you so so investigators can trace guns. Distance determination studies. So if you know we look at gunshot residue patterns on clothing or a victim to determine how far the shooter was. So if it's a case of, oh, we were we were wrestling over the gun and the gun went off. Well, if the evidence shows that that the muzzle of the gun was 14 inches away from the victim, then then that's not what happened. You know, the other, the incidental things that, um, you know, in addition to just the microscopic and the gun work, you know, um, and then proficiency testing and and report writing. And it's really voluminous, the amount of work we do. But um, I I feel like everybody's there because they, you know, they they, they, they have a purpose. And no, it's it's one of the positions in the department that's invaluable, that truly makes a difference. Is absolutely needed and, and probably doesn't get the credit that you guys deserve. I'm glad that you kind of you came out of the shadows for the podcast. Came out of the basement. Uh, came out of the basement, <laughs> um, and now I have proof that guns just don't. You know, the young cops, the gun. Oh, some, the gun just goes somewhere. No, the no. gun fairy does not take <laughs> the go. guns the gu- away. The gun no. fairy does not take the guns no, away. No, um, the, the men and women of firearms identification unit take care of it. And and every single shooting that you may see on the news that you don't hear about, shooting incident that's not report, every single one in the city of Philadelphia comes through your unit. And um, Anne-Marie Kelly, honestly, forensic lab supervisor, I really thank you. I commend your office, your officers, everybody down there for working to keep the city safe. It's uh, invaluable work, so thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'll definitely have you back. And uh, this is one of the first episodes of a three-part series, definitely related to VUFA. So, uh, Anne-Marie, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you.